Hi guys, welcome back to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. I'm Alistair McKenzie, a sports physio from the UK, and on today's episode we have part two with Matthew Buckthorpe. Matt is a sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach and researcher from the UK with a ton of experience working in elite sports setting and he specialises in late stage on-field rehab. Today's episode, Matt is going to discuss some of his clinical frameworks and perspectives which he outlined in his 2019 publication describing the four pillars of high quality on-field rehab. Links to all Matt's resources discussed throughout this episode will be available on the show notes. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyses them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. Listening to Research Unpacked from Informed Performance, and here is today's episode with Matthew Buckthorpe. Matt, thanks for coming back for part two of your series. Um, in part one, we talked about, uh, well, you talked about a lot about rate of force development and the role of performance and injury. Some excellent insights there, and you also gave some links at the end for for our listeners to stay up to date with you. So what we'll do is we're going to bypass all that and we're just going to jump straight into your um, next series, which is all about high quality rehab. So the papers that we're referring to, um, you published in the Journal of Orthopedic Sport Physical Therapy uh, in 2019, and they're separated into part one and two. So we're just going to talk about part one today. And then in the next uh, part, we're going to talk about the follow-up paper. Um, so what was your motivation behind doing this um, paper? And obviously, I know a little bit about your background, but yeah, how come you came to decide to do this clinical commentary, mate? Um, so I guess Claire Arden's to thank. So I um, um, originally this was was kind of a conference talk. So I did these these conference talks at the Isokinetic Conference. Um, so I spoke about um, on-field rehab and four pillars i think uh the the new camp i think it was maybe 2017 um potentially or 2018 yeah 2017 and then i did the five stage one at, um in 2018 and i think it was 2017 year that claire was on the same panel as me and she kind of said you know she was going to become jospt editor and um and obviously she'd be interested in packaging that stuff up as a paper so previously i'd just been doing it as conference talks and and so yeah it was kind of an invited request from claire to to basically take the the presentation and the tacit knowledge that we were doing and just put it on paper basically and so yeah that was that was the the basis of it um in terms of paper format obviously the the four pillars was was developed for a different reason um so the four pillars was really not something i was doing on a clinical level to begin but when I took on an education role with Isokinetic, I wanted to streamline the development of on-field rehab specialists. So obviously the on-field specialist can be anyone really in terms of you, you could be a physio, you could be a sport exercise scientist, an SNC coach, you could be a coach, you could be um, in terms of technical-based coach. Um, and 
because it could be anyone, I feel it's more around the skills that's required as opposed to the profession. And so what I wanted to do was to, to create this education pathway in, in, in different areas and target the different skill sets that's required for, for the practitioners. So that's why I kind of thought, okay, what's on-field rehab? What, what areas do the specialists need to be really strong in and what's the different areas? So from there, I thought, okay, well, obviously it's, you know, I feel you need to be a good movement coach. You need to be a fitness coach, SNC coach. You need to have a good understanding around the sport, hopefully be a technical coach. Um, and then, of course, an understanding around load management. Now, in sport, you might not do all of them. There might be different people doing them. Um, because I was training people to do the sole job themselves, I needed, I wanted to have education pathways in each of those, each of those areas. So I kind of found the four pillars was a, an education focus. Didn't really have an intention of putting it out as a paper. And then Claire Arden kind of um, gave me a little nudge to put that in JSPT. And um, I've been looking for ways to try and publish, to be honest, since going back into industry, it was quite hard to, to still publish as a practitioner. And so I was moving towards the translational research stuff anyway, so it all kind of made sense. Thanks, Matt. So let's let's jump straight in and start with what are the four pillars um, that create higher quality on-field rehab that you discuss in this paper? Sure, yeah. So as you said, yeah, four pillars. The first one's movement quality. Now, on-field rehab as a whole is really around bridging the gap between in-clinic or in-gym activity and, and return to the pitch with the team. So it fits between really your S&C stuff that you're doing and a little bit of rehab um, indoors and, and being able to, to rock up with a team back for training. And, and so it's a bespoke service that takes people on that journey from very simple movements back to, back to team sport. And in terms of movement quality, what we know is a lot of people go back to sport after things like ACL reconstruction with movement deficits. So if we were to test them, you know, they might have dynamic knee valgus, might have a trunk lean, some pelvic um, asymmetries in running, jumping, landing, cutting tasks. And mostly what we do is we typically look at quite simple tasks. So someone might do a single leg squat as a screen and and think that that means that they're moving in a certain way. And we're, again, like everything in sport, we're concerned with the ability to to move well under context-specific environments. You know, how can someone change direction whilst with an external focus of attention, maybe some perturbation, thinking about the, the environment in which they're operating in. And so movement quality really is about transitioning someone from the point of being able to run in a straight line to being able to perform football specific tasks or rugby specific tasks or whatever sport it is and and it's about a movement retraining program much the same as we do a strength training program or power development program so using a periodized um, movement restoration program to go from linear running through to through to multi-directional and then sport specific movements as well and the viewpoint is to to really have someone moving well under realistic situations so that's kind of the movement pillar that the the physical fitness pillar really is about prepping people for the demands of the sport, but also making sure that you've restored their sport-specific fitness profile. Now, this is really – I've never really got this in, in private practice, and I'm, I know a lot of teams are doing it, but rehab, like return to sport criteria, generally involves very little in the way of performance testing. So everything's about, right, you've done your ACL, okay, let's look at your hop distance, let's look at your – you know, your IKDC, or, you know, let's do on a, a, a stability test. Let's look at pain, swelling, range of motion, maybe an isokinetic test if you're lucky. 
um, and maybe some hamstring strength. But none of that reflects the ability to play sport. So you're doing return to sport testing without understanding any performance factors. And the, the second pillar really is, can someone cope with the demands of their sport without showing adverse fatigue? And and have we actually restored their fitness profile? So basically, do do your needs analysis, create your, your preseason screening in essence, and then run that preseason screen with your player and understand whether or not they've restored their performance. And people should be finishing on-field rehab very close to their previous fitness levels. Um, so basically, you just do preseason testing at the end of that process, which I don't know why it hasn't really happened very much in private practice. Um, I presume it's, it's, it's happened a lot in, in football, at least it, it was at the clubs I've been with. Um, and so, yeah, second pillar is cope with the demands of sport. Make sure that you're mimicking the physical intensity of, of training. And basically, by the end of the on-field process, people should be working at the intensities in which they're doing training so that they're ready for that. But you're also doing your additional fitness top-ups to make sure they're fit enough. Um, pillar three is technical tactical. So basically, again, much the same as someone should be able to run, jump, change direction at speed, they should be able to pass, header, cross, um, tackle. Um, so they should be able to do all of those technical tasks and they should have restored an element of decision-making and thinking. Now, tactical restorations are not going to happen during on-field rehab. One of those reasons is typically because the coach you're with might not be as good as a tactical coach. And I don't think an on-field rehab specialist needs to be as good as a, as a proper coach. And what I mean by that is, you know, you don't need, you can bring in your, your say it's a first team, I don't know, whatever club, you can bring in your coach to help you with your technical drills, of course. But it's, I don't feel you need to be a pro-licensed coach to be a good on-field technical coach in that most of what you're doing is controlled drills, maybe sidestepping into a pass, maybe a couple mm-hmm. of you know, two-touch drills, maybe there are a couple of set-piece stuff, maybe it's crossing, finishing, maybe you're really trying to mimic the physical demands and some of the technical tasks. But it's not very tactical focus because you only have one-on-one or, or two players. So it's not an 11 v 11 situation. So pillar three really is about getting people ready to go back to training so that they've practiced all of the relevant tasks. And I've heard stories where people have gone back after, you know, an ankle fracture, their first training session back, they've, 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 they've re, redone their ankle on their first pass because they haven't done any passing as part of on-field rehab. And, and so they should be practicing all of those tasks. You won't ask someone to go back to training without changing direction. And they shouldn't be going back to training without crossing the ball or, or shooting or, or passing. So it's prepping for those technical demands. And then the last one is is load management. So um, basically making sure that they've trained enough, they've developed that chronic workloads, that when they go back, they're able to cope with the demands of training and match play. Because we do know that, that when you expose people to training, you're going to get that cumulative fatigue. So people are going to show fatigue in response to, to training sessions. And if they've not developed that fatigue resistance, then you know the risk of muscle strains, the risk of overload, um, and a spike in acute chronic workloads is is going to happen. So it's just really making sure they've, they've got a sufficient volume of training, um, that they're prepped for the demands of, of of team training and subsequent match play. And I, I say team training because after a long term injury, people shouldn't be going straight back into match play. They should have an extended period of of, of training. Um, much the same as, you know, and again, I've, I've never really got this concept where 
people go straight from rehab and they they'll play a match within two or three weeks and that that will hopefully you'll be like well we will never do that but i've had lots of patients that, that have gone back to certain clubs not not really in the in the uk but in other countries where they've played them on the first saturday first sunday and you sent them back within seven days they're playing a full match and it's a bit it's a bit silly and i think it's because people don't recognize the difference between being able to train and being able to play a match and they are massively different but most of the difference is on a tactical level there's a big difference between a 2v2 and 11v11 situation in terms of the environment and there's a big difference in workloads um so people should be going back to team training or modified training then they should have an extended period much the same as we have a pre-season and you know you'll have a six-week pre-season following a six-week off period so why do people have a two-week pre-season following a a nine-month injury doesn't doesn't really make sense um so yeah pillar four is really about exposing them to training, getting those training adaptations, building that robustness, building that resilience and and getting them ready for for coping with the demands of training and match play. Yeah, so for me, when I read the paper, the the four pillars, um, as you've discussed, are almost like a checklist just to ensure that you are producing a comprehensive rehab when transitioning through the different processes from gym base to to on-field and return and, and all the way through. So Let's um, take this chance. Let's look into pillar one, movement quality in a bit more detail. Can you share some of the ideas of how you approach this aspect of on-field rehab? Yeah, of course. So as you said there, first, it's for me on a movement level, I, I really like to use movement continuums as part of rehab, um, making sure that as part of that movement theme, it runs right the way throughout rehab and movement retraining starts really early in terms of saved on an ACL, you know, your movement retraining starts with gait restoration, making sure that you've got sufficient walking gait. Um, then you're looking at bilateral squatting. Then you're looking at maybe progressing to some, some unilateral loading and, and, and on from there. And so I like to use a movement continuum um, making sure that, that people can, can perform each task with good competency. So looking at their kinematics, making sure they've got good technique, doesn't need to be really advanced just needs to be can this person perform this task proficiently well um, and they shouldn't progress to a more complex task until they're really able to to do that um where people don't want to start to get too picky is perfection isn't always necessary to progress to another task you don't need a perfect bilateral squat to be able to start some unilateral loading it needs to be good but not perfect and sometimes people get so focused on perfection that they forget that they're they're just trying to transition through these stages and you've got to get them to the end. Um, so obviously there it's about looking at one, the, the competency, but thinking around, okay, this movement continuum should be based on complexity and intensity in that every task has a certain load characteristic associated with it. So walking will have, you know, one to two times body mass per, per step, but the rate of loading is very going to be very different to say jogging. We're jogging now, we're going to get two to three times body mass per step in terms of the vertical grain reaction forces. But now, now the rate of loading is starting to increase. Um, and so I like to think of it in terms of um, peak external ground reaction forces. So how much body weight is going through that person? Um, what's, the, what's the rate of loading? So how fast is that load delivered? So normally looking at things like ground contact time becomes quite relevant. And how fast can they perform these tasks? Um, and then other things we can start to think about clinically is, is how can you manipulate that? So how can you get rid of the external loading potentially? 
So that's why I like using things like hydrotherapy and sand, where you can get rid of the external, not get rid of, you can reduce the external ground reaction force. Um, so I like to think of task constraints, like what have a movement continuum in place? How can you manipulate those tasks with different environments and different intensities, for example? Um, and then using a combination of that movement continuum mixed up with some technical-based stuff as well in terms of you have to do each task really well and then it's just progressing through those tasks. If someone's moving reasonably well in all of these tasks, you don't have to do a movement screen for every single task. Just look at their technique. When they're pretty good, progress them to a more advanced task. And in the end, what we're trying to do is take people from walking through to high-intensity and reactive movements under a football-specific situation. There's, there's probably around a good 80 different tasks that are relevant through that continuum. We've just got to tick each one off in a row. Um, and and so I, I like to do things like task progressions, so number of tasks that you've got to achieve along the way. Once, you tick that, once you're able to do that task, tick it off. Um, it doesn't mean you forget that task. It just means on a movement competency level you can perform it. You might still perform that task, but now you'll do it at higher intensities or higher volumes. For instance, like once you can do a bilateral squat, you don't stop squatting. You just add load, um, of course, to make it a, a strength exercise. So, yeah, I think there I'd mix in kinematic and kinetic. The kinetic stuff is thinking about what's the intensity of those movement demands and just progressing through through your continuum from walking through to through to return to play, essentially. So the next pillar is the physical conditioning pillar. Um, so can you discuss how you establish and monitor the physical conditioning adaptations through the rehab process? Yeah, cool. Yeah, so obviously... First point there is training, you know, any our, our on-field rehab is, is a training stimulus. So we should be getting sufficient training adaptations from that. And the on-field rehab has, you know, has cardiovascular adaptations associated with it, but also neuromuscular adaptation. So on-field is conditioning. Um, it's not just about ticking off this box to get people psychologically ready and make sure that they can, you know, they can perform these tasks, but there is a big conditioning benefit associated with that and and on a cardiovascular level it's making sure that you're challenging the energy system sufficiently um, and you're getting a sufficient intensity and volume to bring about improvements in aerobic and anaerobic fitness and what we'd be thinking there on it is what's the what's the internal loading associated with on-field rehab so of course use your gps technology have your your stages in place know the work demands that you want to hit um, but then, of course, look at the internal workload of that patient. So use heart rate technology to look at the cardiovascular response. And really what we're making sure is that someone's getting a sufficient um, intensity of work um, to bring about those adaptations. And the important thing here, though, is, is also noting that the cardiovascular workloads, is, if you're causing fatigue to someone, what are you causing fatigue under? So you've got to make sure it's under a relevant situation because if you're just introducing cutting, then you don't want to fatigue them under that task because that task should first be done at fresh under a quality situation. And then after that, you might fatigue them further down the line. So when you're looking at your, your heart rate monitoring, where are you getting that heart rate response? Because it could be for two reasons. It could just be, I just want to get a heart rate response here. Then you can do that during off-feet conditioning. Take them into the gym or take put them in a pool, do some deep water running, do some, do some off-feet conditioning. Um, but if you want to get it under a specific situation, then we need to know what situation you're getting it under. So I like to first do the conditioning stuff off feet in stage one, um, although I'm not going to talk too much about stages yet. But um, 
so so that just means that I'm trying to get quality of work when someone's fresh, so all their movement stuff when they're fresh, and then I want to get separate cardiovascular conditioning because I don't think they're ready to to do those movements when fatigued. Um, and then as you progress through, you start to get similar cardiovascular responses, but under relevant situations. So by the end of the periods, you're using football techniques to to do their fitness. So you do football fitness work um, and you're using football simulation drills to, to get the cardiovascular response. In terms of the heart rate zones, obviously, typically people will either use arbitrary zones or they use the lactate thresholds. So lactate threshold typically referred to as as the, the lactate response, of course, is the, the, the blood lactate response. So you work it a little bit anaerobically, you produce blood lactate because the pyruvate can't go into the Krebs cycle. So it um, forms lactate. So pyruvate forms hydrogen, goes out the muscle. You get the blood lactate within the muscle and you can read that blood lactate as a, as a, as a work intensity. So the higher the blood lactate, the more anaerobic work that's going on. Um, we know that two millimolar represents kind of the first threshold and four millimolar is the second threshold. So anything above four millimolar. It's going to really be challenging you anaerobically and you've only got a certain amount of work in which a certain amount of time you can sustain that, that workload. So working between two and four millimolar in terms of your lactate response, you've got a longer period of time in which you can do that. So you've got your aerobic really and your, and your anaerobic thresholds. So, uh, isokinetic, our conditioning test was, was a running test at lactate. Um, a lactate f- running, so running speed at lactate threshold. So we would go through the incremental treadmill. Um, and just take blood lactate measures and then look at what's the running speed at lactate threshold. And then we would use heart rate off that. So if your lactate threshold occurs at 87% heart rate, that would be your set. Um, obviously, you can do obituary heart rate zones if you don't have access to lactate threshold testing. So you, we typically use maybe a 70 to 85% as a, an obituary threshold. And then anything over 85%, we presume, reflects that 4 millimolar anaerobic threshold um so yeah you can you can do testing um on on field level i, I didn't really do lactate testing during on-field rehab i'd normally just use heart rate response um obviously you have your your live gps and heart rate ideally with you while doing the session um and then just make sure that you're getting a sufficient cardiovascular stimulus during that during that session as well and that brings us on to pillar three, sports specific, technical and tactical. So what are some of your approaches around integrating technical and tactical demands into the rehab process? Yeah, sure. So I normally start, of course, technical, um, quite controlled drills. And it really depends on the injury to some extent as well. So obviously, if it's an ACL, you know, your risk of re-injury there's, you know, going to be higher than, than in terms of the technical based drills if someone has a slip and, or you know it's it's gone into a position that's that's not great so maybe a really wide foot stance and collapsing into dynamic knee valgus that's that's quite possible early on so you don't want to expose them to a situation there where you haven't got a lot of control so i'd normally start out with severe injuries quite quite with a technical closed situation so very discrete tasks you know volleys little flick ups where they've got a bit of control and they're less likely to reach for the reach for the ball um and then obviously in terms of setting up i i like to break it down into you know small uh, one-on-one situations small group situations and then and then team-based situations as well and all you can do really with on-field rehab is is one-on-one transition into small groups so all of my early stuff starts one-on-one i generally like doing it because you've got a little bit more control um 
in that if that person gets re-injured, really it's on you as the practitioner. So if you are pairing off patients or if you know if you're bringing in a different player you need to make sure you've got an element of control there because you don't want too much risk um and i do like to introduce technical stuff relatively early because you want to get the player doing those doing those those drills um yeah it's safer to wait until the end but that's that's obviously going to be at the detriment of their performance when they go back so you want to introduce them reasonably early on but you should do it in a quite a controlled way so i normally start out with you know discrete tasks volleys um Little, you know, different whether it's straight on the inside foot, pick up volleys, different, you know, different, um, different keep up drills, more just to to get them touching the ball, really. And then, of course, just pass progressing through um, simple passing drills, um, two touch drills, um, and then and then obviously working your way up through uh, long passing, shooting, etc. Much the same way as um, as your movement progressions, you've got that 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 technical base continuum. Um, tactical stuff probably can start a little bit earlier under different situations so this is where it probably hasn't entered too much in in private practice I don't really know how much is done in teams at the moment but players should be you know watching games players should be probably in and around the performance analysis department looking at at, you know going through different set pieces and phases of play and, and should be looking to to try and rebuild that tactical knowledge of the sport. They shouldn't have too long away from that. Um, I've never focused too much on that, um, really. Um, on a tactical level, it's really, for me, when they head towards the, on, the end of on-field rehab, you start to think about um, position-specific scenarios. So if they're a central midfielder, are you setting up your passing and your passing drills for the way they're going to be receiving the ball? The same with a wide midfield player and a fullback. You know, are you mimicking the physical and technical situation as well? So I generally start out quite, quite basic. Same, just just technical based drills for everyone. Can they can they volley? Can they pass? Can they header? Um, and then it goes more more position specific towards the end. Um, tactically, it's pretty basic on a coaching level in terms of if you haven't got large groups, you can't do a lot of tactical stuff because tactical is really about phases of play and decision making and are you in the right position are you pressing at the right time and at the right speed and um, of course you can introduce some of that with 1v1 situations where you're you know you're getting that person to to, to come and press you and and you know you do 1v1 situations there but most of the the on-field stuff is small group and for me tactical based awareness is where you go to large team situations 11v11s and then just rounding off with pillar four which is progressing chronic training loads um predominantly around external training loads using gps metrics and so forth so can you just discuss a little bit more detail around this pillar um and what it entails for us as practitioners yeah sure so obviously here's looking at the distinctions across different metrics of course so you know obviously we're going to be thinking What's the volumes in each of the the, the total distance? The the, um, the the jog distance becomes a bit more relevant. So normally, what we look at in football is you know you'll just say okay, total distance, high speed running, sprint distance. But running distance will become relevant in rehab as well, and to some degree, jog distance um, as a metric because we want to first develop jogging distance and then running distance and then high speed running distance because the first time someone enters on field rehab, they probably ran at maybe twelve. 13k an hour potentially so they've not really 
got a massive volume at, at that speed. Um, and I think one of the hard bits here for practitioners is knowing what the starting value is. So I feel that in the end, we always know what the end value is. You know, we know what we want to get to typically. And generally, it's around about 90% of what they're doing in training or maybe a chronic workload of 70% of their pre-injury value. So we'll set your chronic workloads and you say, there's your target. But we don't really know what the starting volumes are. We don't really know what people have done before. That's because we're not really using accelerometers. Generally, depends on the, the person, the practitioners, the environment. But a lot of people aren't using accelerometers during the indoor stuff. So we don't know what volume of workload someone's accumulated there. And, you know, plyometrics are a form of developing lower limb volumes. Um, the amount of foot contact you're getting, that that very closely mimics the biomechanics of the tasks we're doing outside. So if you do a, you know, if you do a single leg landing, that reflects a lot of the load demands that you get with each step when you're, when you're running. So what I like to do is first make sure that someone's done enough landing, um, uh, plyometric, ballistic stuff, um, enough eccentric strength training and enough, enough indoor functional stuff before they've gone outside. Um, and then from there, it's just saying, okay, well, we're just going to progressively develop volumes in each of the successive intensities. So we're going to start out with running volume, make sure that you're, you're able to comfortably cover, you know, um, 1500 to 2000 meters over over 15k an hour um and then you know won't again talk too much about stages but but then it's a case of going okay high speed running you're not going to start at the beginning because their first on-field session they might be running at 12 13 14 15k per an hour so you're not going to hit high speeds um so the first bit is get some running volumes then start to get some high speed volumes then start to get some sprint volumes and some excels and decel volumes as well and in essence you just guessing what someone's at in terms of what they can do um, because we don't fully know the equatable workloads that they've done indoors we can guess it to some degree but we don't really know how much prep that someone's had there and, and it really it's just just gradually progressing session on session really making there's no i wouldn't say there's like this perfect progression so in some of the papers i've done i've had to put you know what should you put at each of the thresholds but really you're GPS there for me is not prescriptive. It's it you shouldn't prescribe the first two sessions, three sessions, four sessions with GPS. You just you know you use your your experience, you run through the session, and then you look at your GPS metrics potentially after at least early on, and then you compare that GPS alongside soreness measures, alongside pain and swelling, and you know the clinical measures as well because workload is is just one of them you need to look at not just the workload but the athlete's response to such workload um so early on generally a little bit more cautious as long as i've had good prep they shouldn't be a massive issue what we used to have years and years ago is people used to go onto the on field and they get a lot of bone bruising and a lot of swelling and knee pain in the first two or three sessions because they've not had a good enough plyometric prep and and you know you shouldn't shouldn't be running unless you've done plyometrics beforehand um, the same with return to running, right? How many people do return to running and they haven't done any landing or plyometric stuff? These are all prep exercises for being able to cope with that that demand. So really what, what I do is set a starting value that I typically like, um, but that's normally experientially based and also taking into account what they've done. And then they have the pain swelling markers. And then as long as someone's pretty good, you just progress it the next session. I wouldn't really. I I I don't overly focus. Maybe as a different practitioner, I don't overly focus on GPS. I focus more on 
um, on experience more on the other pillars, if I'm being really honest. So I'm much more concerned with someone's movement capabilities than I am with their GPS in the first periods. Much more concerned with, you know, are they are they doing these drills in the right techniques? So more around quality than quantity of work. Um, but of course, as we get towards the end, you've got to build those volumes as well. Yeah, great. Thanks, mate. That's great answers and great insight, I think, um, for each of those. And you've done really well not to tease out too much about the next paper looking at the stages. So good work on that one. Um, yeah, that's going to sum up um, this part one of this paper, of this um, episode. And yeah, in part two, we're going to carry on looking at the follow-up, which is the five stages of higher quality retail. But thanks again for your time um, with this series, with this part, mate. Um, and really appreciate it. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Ali. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks again to Matt for sharing his insights around constructing high-quality on-field rehab. And stay tuned for part three, where Matt discusses the second part of this paper series, summarising a five-stage programme to on-field rehab. To find more informed performance content, head to informedperformance.com, where you can find all our episodes as well as articles and courses from top professionals in performance and sports medicine. And don't forget, you can also find us on social media, at, at informedperformance on Instagram or at informedpod on Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Research Impact from the Informed Performance Podcast. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.